Chapter Thirty Eight, Part Two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter Thirty Eight, Part Two. The last time I met Froude was at the burial of Carlyle at Ecclefacan, Thursday, February 10, 1881. Mr. Arthur Johnstone Douglas, a connection of the Marquis of Queensbury, had invited me to visit him at Glen Stewart, and I travelled to Scotland on Monday the 7th. The weather was then bright, and we drove about to the places associated with Carlyle. Regenputoch, Dunscor, Annan. Much to my astonishment, Mr. Johnstone Douglas did not know even the day of the funeral, and we had to drive some miles to the residence of Mrs. Austin, Carlyle's sister, to discover it. With this lady I had an interesting conversation. She said that her brother had been in boyhood and youth devoted to his mother, and affectionate towards his sisters. He was continually going with them to carry bundles, and was always their willing messenger. She and the other surviving sister, Mrs. Aitken of Dumfries, had always remembered that even in his later youth, so troubled with doubts about the path on which he should enter, his love for them and their mother was unfailing. He was of very sweet disposition, she declared. Mrs. Austin was a woman of veracity, and was perfectly calm when she told me this, which indeed I did not need to be told. Why secrecy was made about Carlyle's funeral I could only conjecture. It had been announced that the dean of Westminster's proposal that he should be buried in the abbey had been declined, because Carlyle had expressed a wish to be buried among his own people. But it was not certain whether this meant at Ecclefacan, or beside his wife at Haddington Cathedral. Neither the day nor the place of the funeral reached the public. No religious service, of course, was admissible, but it seemed to be carrying privacy too far that the coffin should be conveyed to the station in London and from the station in Scotland to the churchyard, without any opportunity for expression of feeling even by his friends. Johnstone Douglas said that the Scottish gentry were proud of Carlyle, though their tenants were fairly represented by one who had said to him, "'What a pity yon man Tom Carroll was an infidel!' He thought that if the day had been known, the fox-hunt would have been suspended, and many gentlemen been present at the funeral." He himself did not feel entitled to enter the churchyard, having no notification from the family, but remained in his carriage outside the gate. At the hour when Carlyle was buried, many of the villagers were off at the installation of a new minister in a neighbouring church. Only when the bell began tolling did those remaining know the hour. At noon the hearse drove up, followed by five funeral coaches, in which were Carlyle's relatives. About a hundred other persons straggled up in the snow and mud apparently peasants. Presently Tyndall arrived, and after him Froude and Lecky, all on foot. The snow and rain now fell furiously. Several hundred children from the schools were pressing their faces through the railing of the graveyard, while only about a hundred of us surrounded the grave. The flowers on the coffin could not relieve the scene, desolate even to weirdness. Not one word was uttered. I supposed that Tyndall and Froude or Lecky would speak. But no, the patriarch of English literature was hurried into the grave in absolute silence. 
When I thought of the man, of what he had been to England and America, it filled me with pain. And had I not been a heretical minister, I should have uttered a farewell. Arthur Johnstone Douglas told me that the burial was in accordance with Scottish usage, and perhaps Carlyle had ordered the silence, which might not have been so depressing had the weather been fair, and everything less bedraggled. But alas, what were sleet and snow and mud falling on the great man's grave, compared with the blizzard that presently struck Carlyle's fame, and chilled the hearts of multitudes that had looked up to him? There was deep and universal feeling at the death of Carlyle, and the publications that swiftly followed froze the tears as they were falling. As we started off for the night journey to London, Froude, Tyndall, Lecky, and myself in one compartment, we were all suffering from the dreary funeral of the man two of us certainly loved with personal tenderness. Tyndall began to say something to me, but his voice broke. My tears also were falling. With Mr. Lecky I had no intimacy, though I sometimes met him. Froude had a sad and weary look. We all sank into silence, but I think got little sleep. For myself I had enough to think of as on the following Sunday, 13th, my chapel was to be the place of a memorial discourse which would be attended by the veterans of Carlyle's times. The nemesis of Carlyle's quasi-hypnotic influence over Froude fell on the memory of Carlyle himself. After the death of Carlyle, the imaginative genius of Froude resumed possession of him, and he wrote a biography so marked by dramatic situations, thrilling scenes, and startling effects, that I discover in momentous chapters the hand that wrote Nemesis of Faith and Shadows of the Clouds. The reputation of Carlyle was so unconsciously overthrown that had I been superstitious, I should have personified Froude's imaginative genius as a daemon, which, having been exercised by Carlyle, returned to wreak posthumous revenge on his memory. When the excitement about Froude's publications was at its height, I was one day at the London Library, and soon after Lord Tennyson's son entered and told me his father wished to speak to me. He was in his carriage at the door and said, I saw you go into the door there and wished to tell you an incident of some interest. When Carlyle's appointment of his literary executor was announced, I asked him why he had chosen Froude. He answered, Because of his reticence. I should certainly have equally ascribed that character to Froude and said so to Tennyson, whose distress at the publications was extreme. But I could not give any theory of the astounding affair. Tennyson's main trouble seemed to be that the bones of Carlyle should be flung about and one evening he repeated to my wife and myself a quatrain he had composed about the delight of apes in seeing a man dragged down to their own apehood. The lines impressed me as mistaken. The people generally were as much troubled as Tennyson at the lowering of Carlyle. Carlyle had never flattered the people. He had become the great representative of anti-democratic tendencies, and they had paid him homage. I had been haunted by apprehensions about Froude's fitness for his great task even before Carlyle's death. One day, when he was already at work on the papers, I called. He gave me the letter written me just before her death by Mrs. Carlyle, which I had given Carlyle. Froude read me from one of Mrs. Carlyle's letters to her husband, a merry anecdote about a titled lady in London, and then said gravely, I hardly feel that I can print that story. 
I was amazed that the thought of publishing it could even occur to him. It was a fair enough bit of gossip for a wife to amuse her husband with, and decidedly witty, but quite unprintable. I went off with an uneasy mind. As Froude got deeper in his work, his friends saw less of him. I have often mourned that William Allingham and I, who had so long and intimately worked with him on Fraser, did not together offer our assistance in sorting the enormous mass of letters and papers by which Froude was overwhelmed. In going over again the miserable events that followed the publication of Carlyle's reminiscences and Froude's biography, I have reached the conclusion that Froude never really knew the man. He appreciated his intellect, but not the byways of his genius, nor the depths of his heart. In talking over the matter with Tyndall, we agreed that the Carlyle we knew is not in the biography at all. I always, indeed, had observed Froude's simple awe in the presence of Carlyle. I never knew an instance in which he uttered any difference of opinion from him. With a mountain of material to master, and the most complex tangles that ever beset a biographer to be unravelled, all requiring the utmost calmness of mind, Froude fell into a panic lest someone might publish a biography of Carlyle before his appeared. He feared two or three writers, among them probably myself. He knew that I had a large collection of Carlyle's letters, and for seventeen years had been making notes of his conversations, and that in Edinburgh he had given me an outline of his life. Alas, Froude did not know how I loved him, and how gladly I would have made over to him every scrap I had, and furthered him in every way. The immensity of his task overwhelmed him. He could not keep a level head under it. He hurried unnecessarily. Carlyle's reminiscences appeared full of errata, and of things never meant for publication. In the biography, said Tyndall, Froude damaged Carlyle and damned himself. The burden of correcting two of the most serious errors in the biography fell on me. It was the most grievous burden of my literary life, but laid on me by every consideration of honour. One of these involved both Carlyle and his wife. Froude and I were once passing an evening with them when I told Carlyle of a visit I had made at Ostend to George Catlin, the American artist, who had lived among the Aborigines in the West and made pictures of them. Carlyle then told us of an early pamphlet by Catlin entitled, Shut Your Mouth. In it Catlin related that the Mandan Indians believed that diseases entered by the mouth, and that the squaws took care to close the mouths of their sleeping children who consequently never had measles, scarlatina, etc. Catlin adopted this theory, and Carlyle said he read his brochure with interest. Then Mrs. Carlyle told us a merry story. Once, when more ill than usual, she hid it from Carlyle, whose work was very hard. One evening, just after tea, Carlyle began to read, and she lay on the sofa gasping. When he turned and said, "'Hadn't you better shut your mouth?' She said she felt like throwing the teacup at him. It turned out, however, that Carlyle had perceived the trouble she was trying to conceal, and in his anxiety it had occurred to him that Catlin's prescription, keep your mouth shut, might help her. Froude forgot the essential part of the story, said nothing about Catlin and his book, and instead of the narrative by which Mrs. Carlyle told of her husband's anxiety for her, made it an example of his rudeness in bidding her shut her mouth. As I was the only witness who could tell the true incident, I felt bound to do so. 
Carlyle was never rude to his wife. Even if she made a provoking remark, he took it meekly. When Carlyle stormed about anything, it was about some large question. He was gentle and submissive in simply personal matters. The other case I had to correct was a mistake of far-reaching effect. Froude wrote, His mother early described him as gay ill to live with. This became a sort of proverb in Froude's mind. In his biography he four times winds up a statement with a sentence, Gay ill to live with. The family were astounded. Nothing could be more untrue. As Mrs. Austin had told me on the day before the funeral, and Dr. John Carlyle many a time, Carlyle had been in childhood, boyhood, youth, of amiable disposition, and always the delight of his mother. Mrs. Alexander Carlyle, Mary Aitken, told me that it was notorious in the family that her uncle was pleasant to live with. Whence then came Froude's four times repeated proverb? In one of Mrs. Carlyle's letters to her husband, afterwards published, she humorously puts in, Thou's gay ill to deal wit. To this Carlyle added the footnote, Mother's allocution to me once in an unreasonable moment of mine. It will thus be seen that a fond mother's momentary expression to a momentarily naughty child, that he was hard to deal with, had been transferred into her description of a son, who was the joy of her life, as hard to live with. Mother's allocution to me once, not forgotten by the devoted son, is taken from his own pen and hung up as the maternal portraiture. That it was retouched by Froude with such intent is not to be thought of. He had long believed that such a genius, sometimes strong and lucid, must be hard to live with in the domestic circle, and having projected the man into the child, read the word live instead of deal, assisted no doubt by Carlyle's penmanship. After my letter in the London Athenaeum, the misquotation was of course altered in the next edition. But alas, the error can never be overtaken. For on that error that Carlyle was gay ill to live with, Froude's whole theory was founded. His work is pervaded by it. Carlyle has passed into history as a bad son. Also as a bad husband, though this is as far from the truth as the other notion. An old physician, related to the Welshes, who knew Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle well, told me that though they might have been less liable to occasional fretfulness if there had been a baby, they were by no means unhappy. And Mrs. Alexander Carlyle, who often stayed with the Carlyles, said to me, If uncle and aunt lived unhappily, I never discovered it. None of their relations knew it, and I am sure they did not know it themselves. Mr. Froude alone knows it. As to this I could not doubt that Froude's imagination had been misdirected by the imagination of Mrs. Carlyle, who not only printed a fairy tale, but wove a little romance around herself, which she made the mistake of confiding to Mazzini. The great Italian, also romantic, could readily take her confidence seriously, especially as Carlyle was indifferent to his cause. In all that Ashburton affair Carlyle was, I am sure, intent solely on the exaltation of his wife. He had vowed when he married her against the wishes of her proud relatives, that he would place her in society far above them all. When finally the doors of that society were opened to her, a meddlesome friend excited her suspicion that she was invited simply by social necessity as Carlyle's wife. It was untrue. 
Mrs. Carlyle, though she had not Carlyle's depth of feeling, was attractive and piquant in society. But she refused the position he had achieved solely for her, and compelled him to fulfill certain social obligations alone. Mrs. Carlyle was ill-advised, and was morbid under the consequences of her social action. But I feel certain that she never fell into the insanity of suspecting her husband's moral character. The two instances of inexactitude in the biography in which I felt bound to testify seemed to classify me with all of Froude's censors. Knowing well how the sensitive hearts of Froude and his children were being torn, I grieved deeply during the affair. While deploring his lack of judgment which had thrown us all into such distress, I knew well Froude's veracity, and my love for him remained as unchanged as my love of Carlyle. The break in our relations gave me abiding pain. For a long time I met him in my dreams, and would awake with tears. It gave me profound satisfaction when he was appointed professor of history in Oxford. The last time I ever saw this beloved friend was in Westminster Abbey, October 12, 1892, at the funeral of Lord Tennyson. From my seat in the choir I could see the pallbearers some distance away, but so changed was Froude that only when he was a few yards off did I recognize him. Again I went home to have my dream, and in it clasp his hand once more. That was the last. End of chapter 38 Part 2